The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. All right, I want to invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. As you are turning in your Bibles, finding Luke 17, we'll be looking at uh, verses uh, 5 through the end of the chapter. I am uh, fresh off of a week uh, in Washington, D.C. with uh, 90 high schoolers and some chaperones from Veritas, our school that meets in the front half of our building. And uh, so... uh, it's been quite an exciting week. I had a, a wonderful time with them, uh, chaperoning and being a part of that. Uh, but my voice is a little raspy, so uh, I apologize for that. <clears throat> I had a preaching professor one time that said, if you can't be profound, be short. So it sort of still remains to be seen which way this will go this morning. Um, but we'll try to do one or the other. Uh, Luke chapter 17 is where we find ourselves uh, this morning, uh, picking up in in verse 5. The apostles, you know, I tell you what, I'm going to just go back to verse 1 and read the whole context since we kind of stopped in the middle last week. And again in verse 1, and he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once, recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is the word of God for us this morning. We sort of chopped this text in half last week, uh, covering the first part. It's really one sort of lengthy uh, ending to this rather lengthy discourse that we began uh, following Jesus' teaching all the way back in chapter 15. If you've got a Bible that has Jesus' words in red, you can just track backwards to where the red started, and you'll see where this began back in chapter 15. It's been a lengthy discourse. He's taught on a number of topics, all of which were rather challenging. Uh, he's told some stories, some parables to illustrate his points. He's sometimes spoken very directly to particular issues, but he wraps up this entire discourse here in chapter 17 in this section that at first glance appears to be sort of some random thoughts sort of somehow smashed together. 
when in fact, uh, I think they are really a collection of warnings for true disciples, some, some final warnings that he wants his disciples to capture as he wraps up this long teaching session. You notice at the very beginning, he said to his disciples, so the disciples are the focus of these comments, and he's spoken to the religious leaders, he's spoken to the crowds in this lengthy sermon, but now he ends it by talking to his disciples, and he lays out for them uh, what I believe are four warnings here at the end of this discourse that are really, really important for them to understand, and four warnings that are really important for you and I, disciples far down the road from them to understand. We caught the first two of these four last week. We saw at the very beginning, he offered this first warning. He says, do not be the person who tempts other people to sin. It is a very grievous and serious thing to, to be someone who opens the doorway of sin in somebody else's life and leads them through. It's bad enough to sin on your own and to deal with the consequences of that, but it's far worse to be the kind of person who leads other people into sin. And he uses a sort of a hyperbolic illustration to, to sort of explain just how terrible it is to do such a thing. And he says it'd be better to have a millstone stone hung around your neck and tossed into the, the sea. It'd be better to drown yourself or to be drowned, to die, than it would be to be the kind of person that leads other people into sin and into temptation. It's a very, very serious thing. He wanted his disciples to understand how important their testimony was, how important their life was, how important the words that they were going to teach were. They needed to be right in their doctrine. They needed to be right in their living. They needed to watch their lives. They needed to watch their doctrine closely so that in no way are they going to be the kinds of people who by their words or by their teaching or by their example are leading other people to sin and to disobey God. Because God takes that very, very seriously. And he still takes it very, very seriously. And the warning is real to you and to me. The second warning we saw last week in verses 3 and 4 was this warning that we are, uh, as, as disciples of Christ, followers of Jesus, not to be the kind of people who withhold forgiveness. If there's anything that's really difficult to exercise in the Christian life, and I think you would agree with me on this, it is to forgive people who have wronged us severely. There, there are some parts of Christian obedience that are easier, and there are some parts that are harder. Um, would you just, if you agree with me, that forgiving someone who has seriously wronged you is one of the harder things to do in the Christian life, would you just nod your head so I know I'm not alone? I think it is one of the harder things to do. The more serious the offense, the more difficult it is to forgive. And Jesus understands the temptation we all face, that his disciples would face to withhold forgiveness when people wrong us. And so he gives his disciples a clear warning, do not withhold forgiveness. Pay close attention to yourself. If your brother sins against you, if they wound you, if they harm you, if they offend you, you go rebuke them with the purpose of leading them toward repentance, and you forgive them. You forgive them openly. You forgive them freely. You do that because Christ has openly and freely forgiven you some very grievous things you've done against him. And to sort of up the ante even more, he goes on to say, really, the extent of our forgiveness is unlimited. He says, look, you don't just do this once or twice or three times, but even if someone offends you, wounds you seven times in the same day, 
and they repent, you forgive them. Seven times in the same day. There's nothing magic about the number seven. The rabbis taught in, in that particular culture that you were to forgive somebody three times. And that was the limit. Three times and that was it. That's all you got. Three strikes and you're out. Baseball wasn't invented then, but it was still three strikes and you're out. You may remember a similar conversation Jesus had with his disciples when they come to him and they say, Master, how many times should we forgive somebody? Should we forgive him seven times? And they thought they were being really magnanimous because the rabbis taught three, so they doubled it and added one and thought, this is really big of us to do it seven times. And, you know, that's going way to the extreme. And Jesus says, no, not seven times. He says, seven times 77. And those numbers are irrelevant. They just are numbers that mean... No, your forgiveness is unlimited. There is no cap. It's not three. It's not seven. It's not ten. Forgiveness doesn't have an end because Christ doesn't cut off his forgiveness of us. We're to forgive our debts as we've been forgiven. And so how do the apostles respond to this their response really gives us sort of the third warning we see this beginning in verse 6 where the apostles say to the lord increase our faith increase our faith after hearing jesus teach on forgiveness like that the apostles their, their reply is really striking what they're hearing from him about forgiveness in particular, but also about the other things that he's been teaching is so counterintuitive. It's so opposite everything that they've been taught or everything that they've known. They absolutely do not know what to do. When they hear him say things like, even if someone offends you seven times and asks you to, they repent, you forgive them. When they hear things like that, they, the, the immediate thing that pops in their mind is, that's impossible. I cannot do that. I do not have what it takes to offer that kind of forgiveness inside of me. They don't know what to do. All they can say is, increase our faith. you got to do something to help me because I don't have what it takes to be able to do that. It's impossible. It is one of the times where we see sort of an honest cry coming from the troubled hearts of the disciples. They know that they don't have the inherent ability to do what Jesus is teaching them. They know that they need something more than their own strength that they could somehow well up from within themselves to do that. They know it. It's a humble admission of weakness. It is a a clear recognition of their utter inadequacy to obey Christ in and of themselves and on their own strength. All of that is what they're saying and what's displayed in that cry. Increase our faith. Increase it. Which leads us really to our third warning that Jesus is giving us here. And that third warning is this. True disciples, they, they remember their weakness and their inadequacy. Always remember weakness and inadequacy. He's been talking about true disciples of Jesus. They don't tempt others to sin. They don't withhold forgiveness. And they're constantly mindful of their own weakness and their own inadequacy. They recognized what the Pharisees who were in the crowd did not recognize. They recognized that they're not good enough. They recognized that they're not holy enough. They recognized that they are not strong enough to do this. That their only hope to be able to forgive like that. Their only hope to not be a stumbling block to other people. The only hope that they had was that they would have to live by faith. 
They would have to trust God to provide for them what they did not possess in and of themselves. God was going to have to provide them with the faith necessary to not be a stumbling block. He was going to have to provide them with the faith necessary to be able to go to a sinning brother and offending sister and rebuke her and bring them around to repentance. They, God was going to have to do something and provide something for them to be able to go and provide forgiveness, genuine offering forgiveness over and over and over again. They needed an increased faith. That's the very essence of faith in itself, isn't it? It's trusting God to, to, to do for us and through us and in us what we cannot do ourselves. And they knew they needed it. The only way you and I will ever do these things, the only way that we'll ever be successful to any degree in our life at offering true forgiveness to people, the only way that we'll live in a life and speak words that consistently lead people toward Christ and not present a stumbling block to them. The only way that we'll ever do those things with any level of consistency is by faith in our crucified and risen Savior. There is no other way to do those things. You don't have what it takes, and I don't have what it takes. It's only when we look to the cross of Jesus where he died, and we look there, and we see God in human flesh, crucified and hanging bloody on a cross, nailed there by the very ones that he came to save. It's only as we look upon his bloodied body and we think about the fact that the very Son of God was rejected, that he was falsely accused, that he was unjustly convicted, that he was arrested, that these very people who had nailed him there had beaten him and jammed a crown of thorns into his head, had nailed him to a cross, mocked him, spit upon him as he died. And in the midst of all of that, he had done nothing but love them. He had done nothing but speak the truth to them. He had done nothing but serve them. And yet that was how they treated him. Ultimately, bleeding out on a cross. And in one of his very last dying breaths, cries out from that cross, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Forgive them. The only way you and I will ever forgive as he forgave, the only way that we'll ever forgive the way he's taught us to forgive is by looking to him. It's by remembering our sin against him that nailed him to the cross. And in doing so, it's stepping out in obedient trust, knowing that we don't have the ability to do what he's called us to do, but if we look to him and we trust in him and we step out in obedience to him, he will provide for us the very thing that we need to do that. The disciples were right in recognizing what they needed was faith, that they were inadequate in and of themselves. However, what they were wrong about in their statement here is the conception of faith that they have. When it comes to faith, the main issue isn't really quantity. And that's what it sounds like they think in their statement. They seem to think that faith is some sort of a substance that they lacked enough quantity of. Like some sort of a mystical substance that gave them some supernatural power. The idea being if they had more of it, then they would have more ability. 
Sort of like Star Wars, the Force. That if they could just get enough of the Force, they'd be able to do all these supernatural things that Jesus was asking them to do. But that wasn't the issue. The issue with faith was never quantity. And in order to address that, Jesus tells them a story, another illustration, and he pulls from the agricultural world around them. And he says to them, you don't need more faith. All that you really need is faith that amounts to about the quantity of a grain of mustard seed. That's all you need. The mustard plant we've talked about before, because Jesus has talked about it before in Luke's gospel, was known for its hot-flavored, tiny little seeds. The issue here isn't the hotness of it, but the smallness of it. The seeds are teeny, teeny, tiny little seeds. And Jesus is saying, you don't need a greater quantity of faith. That's not your problem. Your problem isn't that you don't have enough faith, that faith is some sort of a mystical substance that you need to somehow gather more of. You have all you need. If you have the tiniest little bit of faith, the tiniest little bit of faith that's active and growing, you can do more than you ever could imagine. In fact, you could uproot a mulberry tree and you could toss it into the sea. Again, hyperbole that Jesus is using here. Most likely as he's teaching this, there's a mulberry tree nearby. I think Jesus regularly did this. Because he says here, you could say to this mulberry tree, so likely there was one nearby. Jesus taught this same lesson on other occasions when he was near mountains. Do you remember reading about that? Where he says, if you have faith the size of a mustard, a grain of mustard seed, you could speak to these mountains and you could tell them to jump into the sea and they would do that. So he taught this lesson on more than one occasion. Here he uses a mulberry tree that's nearby. Mulberry trees grow to like 35 feet. They're huge trees. They're known for being deeply rooted. The rabbis taught that a deeply rooted mulberry tree would stay rooted for like 600 years. So Jesus uses that as an illustration of something that's incredibly difficult to uproot. And he says, if you have the tiniest little bit of faith, if it's active and it's growing and you're exercising it, you could uproot the, the, the biggest, most deeply rooted tree here and toss it into the sea. His point is simply, the disciples don't need more faith. The tiniest amount of active, living faith in God was more than sufficient to be able to do everything that he's called them to do. It's not the amount of faith that matters. It's the power of God available to anyone who has the tiniest amount of faith. That's the issue that he's trying to bring forth here. It's not the greatness of our faith that's the issue. It's the greatness of our God that's the issue. And when God calls us to do things that, are, that to our senses seem impossible, like forgiving people who hurt us over and over and over and over again, we don't need more faith than what we have if we have faith to begin with. What we need is to exercise the faith that we have, to put it into action no matter how small it is and to trust in the enabling power of Christ to help us, and then to step out in obedience and watch him work on our behalf. That's what we need. The answer is, I can't do anything because God needs to provide me with more faith. Jesus says, no, that's not what you need. You have all the faith that you need. What you need to do is look to me, trust in my enabling power, and put the little tiny bit of faith you have to use, exercise it, and act on it, and obey me in it, and watch me enable you to do what you think is impossible. That's what they needed. And that's what you need. And that's what I need. 
One of the places we visited this week in Washington was the Museum of the Bible. If you haven't been there, you should go there if you get the opportunity. It is a, a phenomenal museum. Uh, about five or six floors of, of displays. You could spend really a, a full day there going through the whole thing, and it's incredibly well done. But what I remember on this particular visit, it was there was a, a section uh, that they had that was one of their displays that the whole section was on the impact of the Bible in America. And there was one particular little area of that where they were talking about the impact of the Bible uh, in, in regards to justice. And they had there in the midst of the display um, a, a video screen that was, that was just looping these testimonies of different people. Uh, who were Christians, people who had been impacted by the Word of God. And they were showing how the Word of God had impacted them in various ways. And in this particular display, they were looping these testimonies of about four or five different people who had had horrific crimes committed against them. Uh, and, and they were sharing how God, through His Word, helped them to forgive people who had done terrible things to them. And I remember very vividly this one woman's face as I listened to her story. Her husband had attacked her brutally and severely wounded her, nearly killed her. She survived the attack and he was sentenced to a lengthy term in prison, but she was left with all the scars of that brutal attack, including the anger and the resentment and the hatred. And the bitterness that comes from being betrayed at that kind of a level by someone who's that near and close to you. And I remember her talking about what had happened. She didn't talk a whole lot about the crime, but what she did talk about is what was going on in her heart after that. And she said that as she read the Bible, she was convicted that she needed to forgive this man who had done this horrendous thing to her. She didn't want to forgive him. She didn't know how to forgive him. But what she did know is every time she picked up her Bible, the Holy Spirit continued to remind her that she needed to forgive. And she said, so even though I didn't want to, and even though I didn't know how to, I got in my car, I went to the prison, I looked him in the eye, and I said, I've come here today to forgive you. She hung up the phone, or to say, I forgive you. She hung up the phone and she walked out. And, and, and I can remember as she was telling that part of the story, the countenance on her face changed. And she said, I've never felt more free in my entire life than I did that day. She said, God, help me do what I never thought I could do in a million years. And he freed me from all of that stuff that was corrupting my heart. That dear woman didn't want to obey God in that. She didn't even know how to obey God in that. She didn't think she had enough of what it took to obey God in that. But every time she opened her Bible, she heard the voice of Christ speaking through his word saying, go and forgive. So with the little mustard seed of faith that she had, she got in her car and she went. And she trusted God to enable her to do what she didn't want to do, didn't know how to do, and he did it. And it was life-changing for her. And that's what Jesus is saying to these men 
He's saying you don't need more faith. You don't need to sit around waiting to obey God until you get more of something that you think you lack. You have all the faith you need. You just need to exercise it and act on it and trust God to help you do what you don't want to do and what you don't know how to do and what you feel weak and inadequate to do. Let's see what he does for you. What an impactful message that had to be for them. What an impactful message that is for me and for you. Because I don't know about you, there are an awful lot of times when I'm reading God's word and I I just have to shake my head and say, like, God, that's impossible. I don't know how I could do that. I certainly don't know how I could do it more than once or twice. You got to give me something that I don't have. You got to help me. And that's exactly where he wanted his disciples. He wanted them with this abiding sense that they were weak in themselves and that they were inadequate in themselves, that in order to do anything meaningful for his kingdom, they were going to have to live by faith and they were going to have to trust in him when they didn't know how and when they even didn't want to obey. So he gives them this vivid story to remind them, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like the religious leaders that you've seen your whole life who prance around like they're pros at all this stuff, like they've got within themselves everything they need to obey God and to please God and that they're the stars of the show, that God has trophies on his mantle with their faces on it. Don't live like that. Live with an abiding reality that in and of yourself you are weak and you are inadequate and you don't have what it takes and you need to be a man or a woman who lives by faith. That was his message to them and to us. And then he moves on to a final warning. And that final warning is this. Simply never forget you're living on grace. Never forget you're living on grace. He shares one more story with them before it's in. And he moves the sort of the, the illustration from agriculture uh, to servitude. He moves it from trees and mustard to masters and servants. And there's one final warning he wants to issue to his disciples and to me and you. And it's a warning against living life in foolish pride. He knows, Jesus does, that his death is not too far away. He knows what's coming in Jerusalem relatively soon on the timeline. And he knows that these disciples are going to be left in his absence to lead the fledgling church, to establish it and to lead it. He knows that they are going to be the ones that are going to take the gospels to the, the gospel to the ends of the earth. Right now, as he talks to them, they're nobodies. But one day, in the relatively near future, they're going to become somebodies. They don't know that, but he knows that. God's going to use them to do some really incredible things. And they are going to be tempted, like the Pharisees, to think far too highly of themselves when things go well. They're going to be tempted to think that God is particularly impressed with them. They're going to be tempted to think that their faithfulness somehow puts God in debt to them. They're going to be tempted to, to think that they, can, that they sort of deserve certain rewards and certain benefits for their service to God. They're going to begin to be tempted to think that somehow God owes them something for their honorable service. And we've talked about this time and again with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And this whole extensive system of rewards and punishments and this whole system of theology that taught people that God rewarded 
the ones he was pleased with, with wealth and with things and with easy lives and with lives and with material blessings and that God punished people he was displeased with, with disease and tragedy and bad circumstances. And because they lived easy lives and because they were rich and powerful, they assumed that that meant that God was blessed by them. And in fact, they believed that God owed them that for their faithfulness. They absolutely loved to be honored and exalted for their religious obedience. In fact, that's why they did pretty much everything they did, to be seen and to be honored and to be exalted. And since the people were impressed with them, they assumed that God must be impressed with them too. And it's this very attitude that Jesus addresses in the end here of this text. That is the kind of attitude that should never mark a disciple of Christ. Never. Now, we run into a text like this. It's difficult in our modern sort of culture to address it. Uh, anything that, that speaks to the issue of slavery and servitude conjures up all sorts of cultural images in our culture that are difficult, uh, ugly, nasty things from our nation's past that sort of shade our way of looking at the text. But Jesus says very clearly here in this in this text that he's talking about a cultural setting of slavery. The word doulos is the word used here, and it's a word that probably translated in your Bible, if you carry an ESV, is servant, but the word means slave. It's referring to a slave. So some Bible translations in English translate it slave, some translate it servant, but it is a word that defines someone whose being is completely controlled by somebody else. And so he uses this sort of imagery of slaves and masters that was so prevalent in his day in the Roman Empire as an illustration. Now, he does this in a couple of ways. Really common in the culture was for uh, a wealthy person who had a home and maybe a business and a farm to have a single slave who did an awful lot of things for them. Everything from working in the fields to managing business matters to cooking to cleaning to serving meals to sort of a, a multitasking person who did a lot of things for their master. But by the time you get to the first century, slavery has been around for a very long time. A very long time. The Romans just sort of made a whole system of it as a part of their sort of economic and commerce system. They sort of had rules and regulations for how this was to play out and how it was to be a part of their culture. It was different in a lot of ways from the slavery experienced in 17th and 18th century England and America. It was different specifically in that it wasn't tied to any degree with a particular race. That's hard for us to imagine because so much of the imagery from our culture is tied to race. But in first century Rome, somebody could end up a slave in a lot of different ways, and none of it had to do with their ethnicity. They could end up being a slave by being captured in war. Captured in war, you were made a slave. You could be made a slave by being kidnapped by pirates and sold into slavery. That's another way you could become a slave. But you could be born into slavery. Any children born to slaves were property of the master. So many were then born into slavery. There was quite a subculture within the sort of the, the, the slavery of the day of people who had intentionally sold themselves into slavery for various reasons and purposes. And oddly enough, there was a, uh, 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 some slaves came from one of the common means of dealing with unwanted pregnancy. If there was an unwanted pregnancy, quite frequently the mothers would leave the 
newborn baby out in the elements to die and folks would come along and take those children and raise them into slavery. So when we talk about first century slavery, we're talking about an institution that people entered into in a lot of different ways for a lot of different purposes. But the bottom line issue here is simply this. Slavery then, and slavery at any point in history, is an institution that's an abomination, but it's an institution in which slaves are seen as property and they can't do anything without sort of the consent of their master. In the first century, you couldn't marry, you couldn't file a lawsuit, you couldn't inherit property, you couldn't inherit money. You really couldn't do much of anything about your life apart from the consent of their slave master. They could, however, buy themselves out of slavery. And one author and commentator says that most slaves in the first century Roman Empire could expect to be freed by the age of 30. Regardless, it's a horrible practice in any generation, in any culture, and the Bible clearly condemns the practice no matter where and when it takes place. You can go to passages like Exodus 21, verse 16, where in the Mosaic Law, it is explicit and clear, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be, what? Put to death. It was a capital crime to capture somebody and sell them into slavery in the Mosaic Law. You turn over in your New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and you see this, uh, this, this sort of practice of enslaving people lumped in with a whole bunch of other sins like sexual immorality and people who are unholy and profane, liars, people who mistreat their parents, all of these things that are an abomination to the Lord, uh, being someone who enslaves is listed in the midst of all of that. Yet, in the first century culture into which Jesus was living, slavery was an entrenched reality. It was everywhere. And so here, as in other parts of the New Testament, Jesus uses the station of a slave to sort of act as a parallel to a believer's relationship with God. Christians, we could say, are to God. In some ways, slaves are to their masters. That's the parallel that he builds here. And that's the parallel that we see play throughout the rest of the New Testament. In fact, Paul develops this even more fully. When you read Paul's letters further in the New Testament, you see him use this word to describe himself in the very beginning of several of his letters, Romans chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, and others where he says, I'm Paul, a slave, a doulos of Jesus Christ. He found his identity in that word. I am, in every sense, not an important person. The only thing you need to know about me is I am a slave who obeys my master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is the illustration that Jesus is building. It's the illustration that plays throughout the New Testament. In fact, Paul says it very directly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, a familiar passage where he's talking about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are, say this part with me, not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You are a slave to God. He has purchased you. You belong to him. Glorify him. It's the imagery there. It's the same as Jesus is using here. And he uses that sort of imagery to sort of 
asks some rhetorical questions that lead his disciples to this conclusion. And so the way he does this is through rhetorical questions that everybody in the audience knew the answer to the questions. They were obvious answers because everybody understood the basic relationship in their culture between slaves and masters. Masters own slaves. Slaves don't own masters. Slaves serve masters. Masters don't serve slaves. Is that all a fair assessment? That is what everybody knew because they saw it every day. They lived it every day. And so in the midst of that kind of a culture, Jesus asks them three questions. And he says this, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? The answer to that question is what? No, nobody would do that with their servant. An invitation to sit at a wealthy man's table was a a high privilege to sit at a man's table and dine like that. It was to be welcomed as like a family member. And nobody would have done that with a servant, a slave in the first century. It just wasn't done. You wouldn't say to a slave when they come in from their morning work, oh, you, you know, you've worked so hard today. You know, just sit at the table. I'll go prepare the meal for you. It just wasn't done. It would have been a ludicrous idea to anybody who was listening to Jesus. Masters did not prepare meals for servants. It was the basic duty of a servant to prepare the meal for the master. That was just how it worked. It goes on to say, would you, would you, would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you'll eat and drink? What's the answer to that question? Everybody would have said, yes, that's exactly what we would say. You would say to him, come inside, finish your work, and then you're free to do what you want to do. Because preparing the meal was the basic part of the duty of a servant. That was his job. It was his duty. It was his responsibility to do that. So that's what people would have expected. And then he ends with a third question. Does any person who does that thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And the answer to that question would have been, no. No. You don't normally honor and celebrate people just for doing their job. That's sort of a basic expectation is that you do the job that you're supposed to do. We don't normally throw a party for people who just do the job they're supposed to do. I mean, isn't that true? I mean, you don't go through the Chick-fil-A drive through you know, and when they hand you your food, ask the person to come out and gather a crowd and get a cake and throw a party because they handed you your chicken sandwich through the window. You just assume that they're going to do that. It's expected. It's the basic duty of somebody at the Chick-fil-A window to give you your sandwich. You don't celebrate that. You don't honor that. You expect that, right? These days, you know, it's probably wrong, but it's the basic expectation. What Jesus is saying and asking all these questions is, is basically this. If we could just summarize it. He's saying this. Which one of you, if you had a slave, would feel obligated to reward the slave for doing his normal duties? And the answer to that question is, none of them would. Nobody would feel obligated to do that. And so Jesus brings it home by saying this, so you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Just like slaves don't expect to be celebrated and honored and rewarded for doing their daily work, Followers of Jesus are not to expect to be celebrated, honored, and rewarded for simply serving and obeying Christ. Our obedience to Christ isn't something extra we do for him. 
is the basic expectation of a disciple and a follower. He is our master. We are not his. We serve him. He does not serve us. Any obedience that we offer him, any service that we render to him, does not make him our debtor, as though he owes us something for serving him. It, it, it is nothing more than our baseline duty. It is the basic expectation of a disciple to obey and to follow and to serve. At the end of the day, whatever we do for Christ, in terms of serving him, in terms of obedience, you and I, we never rise to the level of anything more than an unworthy servant. Right? I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done for Christ. None of us rise above that level. I could become the most famous preacher in the world. I could draw thousands of people to come listen to my preaching. I could write a thousand books that sell around the world. Never rise to the level of anything more than an unworthy servant. Never. At the end of the day, all I'd be able to say is, whatever I did for Christ, that was my duty. And even that I didn't do perfectly. Even on my best days, I wasn't very good. He doesn't owe me anything. Anything that he's given me is a gift of grace. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. I'm simply an unworthy recipient of his kindness and his grace. That's all I am. And that's all you are. True disciples understand that about themselves. They understand that, that their obedience and their serving of Christ doesn't obligate him to do anything for us. It doesn't obligate him to give us some special benefits or some special gifts or some special honor or some special celebration. At the end of the day, whenever I've served Christ well, I haven't done anything more than my baseline duty. That's all. The fact that he chooses to bless me, the fact that he chooses to give me good things, that's a gift of grace. He doesn't owe me good health. He doesn't owe me a certain amount of money in my bank account. He doesn't owe me an enjoyable job. He doesn't owe me a cushy, peaceful, pain-free life. He doesn't owe me a good day every day. Any of that that I experience is a gift of his grace. It's a gift of his grace to a very, very unworthy servant. That's all we are. That's all the apostles were. So what about you? What have you been thinking about this week that you think God owes you? What is it that you lack that you think he owes you? What is it that you think you've earned by your service and obedience to him that he hasn't given you, that you're upset about, that you're angry about, that you're bitter about, that you think you deserve? What have you been grumbling about lately that you think God should be giving you? And on what basis do you think he owes you that? At the end of the day, my friends, we are but unworthy servants. That's it. Anything we do that we get right is nothing more than the basic duty we should have been doing all along. He's never our debtor. We're always his. But thank God that he's a gracious God who delights to pour out his blessings on unworthy servants. Praise God for that, right? Yeah. Let's pray together. Lord, you are remarkable. 
There are times, Lord, when I read these stories about your life and your ministry and the things that you taught that I'd love to have a time machine that I could just teleport in and see the faces of the people that you spoke to and watch their reactions. This part of your sermon on this day is one of those moments. It had to have been shocking. It had to have been impactful. It was such a contrast to everything that they had seen around them about spiritual leadership and obedience to God. And frankly, it's so countercultural to everything that we're taught today, too. It's easy for us to be judgmental about the Pharisees and religious leaders, to point condemning fingers that they're prancing around thinking God owes them something about their obedience. Oh, but when we look in the mirror, oh, when we're honest with ourselves, oh, we see the seeds of that stuff in our own hearts as well. That kind of soul rot can find its way into our lives. It's so easy when life isn't going the way I want it to become angry and bitter toward you as though you owe me something because I preach sermons or because I do this or I do that as though somehow my obedience makes you my debtor. It's very easy for me and I trust for many of my friends to lose sight of the fact that even on my best day, I'm nothing but an unworthy servant, a recipient of your grace. Lord, crush that kind of spiritual pride in our hearts wherever it finds root. Dig it up and burn it so that it doesn't corrupt our soul any further. We celebrate the fact that you're a gracious and merciful God who delights to pour out your grace on unworthy servants. Help us to serve in whatever capacity, Lord, with a regular mindfulness that that's all we are. Anything we do, it's simply doing our duty. We don't deserve a celebration. We don't deserve applause. We don't deserve any particular honor or rewards. We're just servants and not particularly good ones at that. Lord, ground us in that truth. For we pray it in your name. Amen.